This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast is about the unexplained death of a young woman, Laura Van Wye. I have reviewed and I will report on the contents of official case files provided by the police department that's investigating her possible homicide, including witness interviews and police reports. You will hear me provide my own opinions about these materials in the hopes of shedding new light on this cold case. It's important to stress, no person has ever been charged or convicted of killing Laura, and everybody identified in this podcast is innocent until proven otherwise. Previously on Bonaparte. I was driving home from the grocery store with the kids, and Sarah was in the back playing with a doll. And I heard her say to her dolly, Mommies do the nice things and daddies do the mean things. Donnie was like a really, he was really fun. Like he was really fun to hang out with. I'm like, okay, that is it. You are done with this guy. She was like, I can't let Sam think this is normal. And so she called her mom and got like a Greyhound ticket and went home. As the court case went on and we got more and more of Donald's medical records, I was like, wow. You have a little baby with no mother. Who's going to take care of him? It wasn't until 1999, two and a half years after Laura died, that the most consequential question raised by her death would be resolved in a small, dreary Iowa City courtroom. I remember the courtroom. It did not have a jury box. It was a very small courtroom, very plain. There was audio-visual equipment in the courtroom because we showed some... VHS tapes of a party at the Knight's home, and that was pretty big stuff. Laura's mother, Leanne, is seeking custody of Laura's son, Samson. She believes Donnie Knight, Samson's dad, is not fit to be a father. But Donnie fires back, digging into Leanne's own past and her troubled relationships. I was nervous because of the witness list that they had produced early on, and some of those people might not have you know, painted me a good picture. He was pretty pointed with his questions, especially about my prior marriages. Is he trying to create a sort of an impression in the judge's mind, do you think? Oh, yes, that I wasn't as stable as I, you know, purported to be. I don't think they were prepared for my fortitude. Leanne and Donnie were never close, but Laura's death opened a rift between them that never closed. Left hanging in that divide was Samson, Laura and Donnie's son. Laura and Leanne feuded throughout Laura's teen years, and Donnie claimed Laura told him that if anything happened to her, she wanted him to raise Samson, not Leanne. But then Laura broke up with Donnie months before she died and reconciled with Leanne. Leanne says Laura told her she wanted her to raise Samson and not Donnie. Conflict was inevitable. And as the custody proceedings unfolded, Leanne and Donnie hardened into their opposition and broadened the field of conflict. I think they were shocked by the custody proceedings 
and they had no idea what lengths I would go to. From Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, I'm Jason Stavers, and this is Bonaparte. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Nothing about Samson's birth suggested he would become the source of so much division. On the contrary, he came into the world as a redeemer. You're brainwashed to think that teen pregnancy or having a baby before you finish college and get married is like the worst thing you can possibly do. That's Liz Moss, one of Laura's school friends. And I'm not suggesting that every troubled child should have a kid. (laughs) I don't mean that. Um, But for some people, I think it really does reset it resets their perspective on life and focuses their goals in a different direction. You know, in some cases, the kid probably saved the parent's life. And I had that feeling about Sam and Laura. Laura's Aunt Ev felt the same. Now that she was pregnant, it was like Sam had fulfilled her. She now felt like she had a purpose. It's, it's like she had, had been searching for who the heck Laura was. And this little baby, this being a mother, was, was so fulfilling that all that other stuff, it might have been on her journey to this, but this is where she wanted to be. Samson didn't just turn Laura's life around, though. He brought Laura and Leanne back together. I mean, our relationship was very, very nice, very sweet. Of course, I was letting her live at home with the baby. She said to me, Mom, I get why you had all those rules. After she had Sam, she said, Mom, now I really get it. (laughs) Like, music to my ears. (laughs) Laura always loved children, but once she has one of her own, she decides to make them her profession. She spends the summer planning a daycare business, and by October, she has the necessary permits and is signing up clients. So she went through their program, and she got on the approved list. They came out and looked at the home, you know, and cleared everything, made sure everything was safe, and so she got on the list. She was going to start that next week on Monday. But then, on Saturday morning, October 26th, Donnie comes to see Leanne at work. 
I was just doing uh, book work in my office and he knocked on the door and I let him in and he just stood there for a minute and I thought, oh great, he's gonna quit right before Christmas. And then he said, I have something to tell you and I just looked at him. And then he just very unemotionally said, Laura is dead. And I remember saying very emphatically, that's impossible. And then the first thing after that, I said, where's Sam? And he said, he's in the car with my mom. So I rushed out the door to check on Sam. It was impossible for me to speak for at least a month after Laura died. I couldn't open my mouth because if I did, I would just start uncontrollably crying. I remember looking at the clock and thinking, okay, it's, the clock says it's 11 o'clock in the morning. What, what do people do at 11 o'clock in the morning? What should I be doing? I'm sitting in my empty house, you know, crying off and on all the time. And I just couldn't get a real big grasp on day-to-day functioning. In the days after Laura's death, Donnie moves back into Leanne's home so they can care for Samson together. But Leanne and Donnie living under the same roof is an arrangement that's doomed from the start. It lasts just two weeks. Samson is clearly upset at Laura's disappearance. He isn't sleeping, he's agitated, and he's acting out. Leanne wants to take him to the doctor, and Donnie accuses her of wanting to medicate him, something he says, with some justification, I think, Laura would not have wanted. Leanne, meanwhile, has found a large bag of marijuana in Donnie's room and confronts him about it. They argue, and Donnie leaves, taking Samson with him to his mother's house in Bonaparte. The dispute over custody of Samson that follows ends up consuming Leanne and Donnie's life for the next two and a half years. They incur many thousands of dollars in legal fees. They hire investigators and expert witnesses and pour through one another's lives. And in the background, ever-present, is another question— one that the custody trial cannot answer, but also can't escape. How did Laura die? Nearly everyone I've spoken to who knows Donnie or knew him when he was with Laura likes him. They describe him as funny in a goofy, gentle kind of way, easygoing, good-looking, someone who was comfortable with people and fun to have around. He liked music and played guitar in a band with some friends. Like most people in his crowd, he drank a lot, smoked pot regularly, experimented with other drugs. Several people also told me that when he met Laura, he was estranged from his family and that he didn't like to talk about them or about Bonaparte. What I know about Donnie beyond these surface observations comes mainly from the custody dispute over Samson. The case file includes quite a lot of material in Donnie's own words. He testifies under oath and submits several sworn written statements to the court. I have these documents, but no audio. 
So in some places in this episode, we've hired an actor to read Donnie's testimony. I reached out to Donnie personally, but he's decided not to speak with me, at least not as of the time we're recording this episode. Donnie's youth was not easy, and I can only imagine how difficult Laura's death was for him and the years of acrimony and suspicion that followed. We all deal with trauma in our own way, and I can't blame Donnie for not wanting to relive his own. But at the same time, I can't tell Laura's story without telling Donnie's. And if you're with me this far into our podcasts, I hope you agree with me, Laura's story is worth telling. Donald Thomas Knight III is born in Des Moines, Iowa on August 10, 1970, to Rebecca and Tom Knight. His family moved several times during his childhood, to Ohio, to Southern California, and to several towns in Iowa, before eventually settling in Bonaparte. In 1984, when Donnie is 14, he's expelled from high school for smoking pot on school grounds. From that point, until he meets Laura in 1992, Donnie's life is a series of run-ins with the law, petty stuff mostly, possession, shoplifting, intoxication, and a revolving door of drug and alcohol rehab. His drug use begins early. He tells counselors in rehab that he's introduced to marijuana when he's just seven or eight years old. Later, though, when he sits for a deposition in Samson's custody case, he revises this story. He was exaggerating, he says. He wasn't quite that young. It also indicates that you used marijuana when you were about eight years of age. Is that accurate? I think I was exaggerating a little bit there. Some grandiose teenage behavior. So you were a little older than eight when you started? Yeah. How much older? 10, 12, young. I'm not trying to say I was not young. Both his parents used marijuana back then, Donnie testifies, sometimes in his presence. Twice, when he was around 12, he says, he smoked with them, something the custody court found significant. And tell me how that happened. How did you start smoking marijuana with your parents? They had a couple friends uh, who had a daughter a year or so older than me, and their daughter was smoking, and she passed it to me, and that's how it happened. Did either of your parents say anything when you accepted the marijuana and smoked it? No, but I do recall it being a very, very odd, tense moment. Did they talk to you about it afterwards? Yes. What do you recall about that? That they weren't comfortable with it. By my count, Donnie goes through six rehab programs before he meets Laura. He goes to his first when he's 15 years old because he's on probation for marijuana possession. It's an inpatient facility and he's there for four months. He runs away five times. When he's finally discharged in December of 1986, he's 16 years old, but he doesn't return to his family's home in Bonaparte. He moves to Iowa City on his own. Five months later, he's on probation again and gets sent to another inpatient facility. When he's 17, he breaks into a pawn shop, steals an electric guitar. He's arrested more or less red-handed, but he takes the case to trial, only to take a plea deal at the last moment. He's given a five-year suspended sentence, 10 days in jail, and 180 days at a halfway house. While living at the halfway house, he's arrested again for shoplifting cigarettes from a Hy-Vee convenience store. The judge in Samson's custody case would later observe that Donnie only entered rehab when he was forced to do so and concluded, Donald Knight has chosen to live a life of drugs, alcohol, and criminal activity. And maybe that was true. 
But there's one particular note in Donnie's extensive file I want you to hear. A counselor reports what Donnie's probation officer told him. Don's family refuses to get involved in the family program while he's here and indicated that the family's attitude is that they have tried long enough and Don keeps getting into trouble and they plan to devote their attention to their other children. That's from May 15th, 1987. Donnie is 16 years old. 1987 was also the year that his mother, Rebecca Knight, became mayor of Bonaparte. If you're thinking, Wait, the same Rebecca Knight that smoked pot with her 12-year-old son? Well, I'm not entirely sure what to make of it either. Bonaparte is a small town, but it's not Schitt's Creek. And Rebecca's political career was no joke. She served two terms as mayor. And then in 1996, she ran for a seat in the Iowa House of Representatives, won, and served two terms there as well. She gave her first floor speech in support of Iowa's ratification of an Equal Rights Amendment. In a video of Laura's funeral, where Rebecca said a few words about their loss, she comes across as poised and professional. And that's how people who met her around that time described her to me. When she was serving in statewide office, she was featured in the New York Times, which credited her with spearheading a mini-revival of Bonaparte by securing grants for everything from new sidewalks to flood relief. The paper of record observed that she had, quote, refined the art of prairie grantsmanship. When Donnie's PO officer reported that his parents had given up on him, perhaps that was simply how things were. Or perhaps it was a moment of frustration from caring parents at the end of their rope. Or maybe Donnie had become an embarrassment, a distraction from better opportunities. There's one more aspect of Donnie's childhood that's relevant here. Donnie's father. In his deposition during the custody litigation, Donnie describes his father in harsh terms. It's a figure who had a negative impact on his life. What do you mean a lot of crap that went on when you were a child? What are you referring to? Well, my father being irresponsible, some violent episodes, generally many unhappy parts of my childhood. Violent episodes towards whom? Towards me. Anyone else in your family? My mother. To help make his case for custody of Samson, Donnie hires an evaluator to report on his fitness as a parent. He tells the evaluator his father is the reason that he left home as a teenager. The custody evaluator also interviews Rebecca. She confirms that her husband, Donnie's father, had abused her physically and emotionally. Then the custody evaluator quotes Rebecca directly in her report, writing, quote, I was raised to keep the marriage, the family, together, regardless of the problems, end quote. After Leanne and Donnie argue, and Donnie takes Samson back to Bonaparte, Leanne moves quickly to try and secure custody of her grandson. We went to a lawyer about a week after Laura died, just anticipating a custody struggle. She believes Donnie and his family will want Samson for their own. And partially that was because Rebecca, while sitting in my house on that Saturday, was writing in a sketch pad that she left behind. And she wrote, Sam, you're our legacy. You will be the seed of our empire. And I'm like, pretty weird thing to say about a baby, number one. And what empire are they talking about, number two? 
but it suddenly seemed to me that, that there was going to be a custody fight. And I did not want him to be with them. In Leanne's view, Donnie has neither the economic security nor the personal skills to raise her grandson. But that's not her only concern. From early on, she suspects that Donnie was somehow involved in Laura's death. I want to make clear, again, that nobody has been charged in this case. During Samson's custody proceedings, an investigator with the Missouri police told Donnie's lawyer that Donnie was not the focus of their investigation. But Leanne is not the police, nor is she the judge or jury in Laura's case. And her suspicions matter not for what they tell us about what happened to Laura, but because they help determine what happened to Leanne, and by extension, to Samson and Donnie and so many others affected by Laura's death. Her suspicions of Donnie rest mainly on the circumstances. Donnie was Laura's ex-boyfriend, he had been violent with her in the past, and the last time Leanne saw Laura, she was with Donnie. What parent wouldn't consider the possibility? Leanne sent me pages from a novel she's writing based on how she imagines Laura's death. And in it, the Laura character gets into an argument with the Donnie character. He hits her and she falls, fatally striking her head. It's not an implausible explanation, though of course, there's no direct evidence that's what occurred. The novel is speculative fiction, not fact. I asked Leanne once how she'd feel if it turned out to be a drifter that had killed Laura, that Donnie had nothing to do with it. She paused for a very long time before she answered. Hmm. I just don't think that's possible. I never crossed my mind that it could be someone that's unconnected because she had Tony's stuff on. And she had bled out before Tony's stuff was put on her. So I just never, ever gave that a thought that it could just be a random person. If Donnie was involved, that suggests to Leanne that his family may have helped with a cover-up. Tony and Sarah's story about Laura going to sleep in the trailer doesn't seem likely, nor does Rebecca's statement to the police that Donnie was at the house in Bonaparte all night. Leanne's mind continued to churn on these details while she grieved her daughter. In the custody case, Rebecca told the court that she and Donnie had discussed him coming back to live with her months before Laura died. Leanne reads this to mean that they are planning that Samson would be coming to Bonaparte. Rebecca's scribbled reference to the seed of empire grows larger and more ominous for Leanne. To build the case that Donnie is not a fit parent, Leanne and her lawyers hire a private eye to look into Donnie and the Knights. He strikes a nasty vein of small-town gossip. Several Bonaparte locals tell him that they don't trust Rebecca Knight or her husband, and have concerns about how she wielded political power. But, they tell the investigator, they won't say this on the record because they're afraid of Rebecca. It's more grist for Leanne's suspicions and fears. A powerful political family, a seed of empire, and only Leanne standing in their way. Leanne's lawyer, Don Thompson, shares the allegations of shady conduct with Donnie's lawyer. His message is clear. Proceeding further in the case could be embarrassing for Rebecca, who has just been elected to the Iowa House of Representatives. Donnie's lawyer responds with a searing letter, denying the allegations and accusing Leanne's lawyer of relying on, quote, groundless gossip to try and embarrass his client's family. I have to say, I'm sympathetic to Donnie's lawyer. There's little in the private eye's report that has much chance of being admitted into evidence. 
Leanne's lawyer is playing hardball here, raising the stakes, not just for Donnie, but for Rebecca. Leanne's suspicions of Donnie's family and its possible involvement in Laura's death, whatever their validity, they shape her choices in the custody fight and beyond. But as her lawyer acknowledged when I spoke with him, they were not going to play a role in the custody case itself. In terms of of the information that was available that we could actually present in court as evidence, uh, there wasn't anything firm and conclusive. So suppositions weren't helpful in a court of law. Proof was. So I didn't spend a lot of time with it, other than occasionally to discuss it with Leanne, because she needed to talk to someone about it, obviously. My focus wasn't really on Laura's death. It was on whether Donnie was fit. To prevail in a custody case over Samson's father, Leanne faces an uphill battle. Well, the the beginning factor, I think, is that the the father, the natural father of a child, uh, has some, you know, sort of has a leg up under the law in Iowa. The burden was really on Leanne to show that Donnie wasn't uh, a fit and capable person to have custody. Leanne's argument to the court is twofold. First, she points to Donnie's long-standing struggles with drugs and alcohol and his apparent unwillingness to curb that use, even in the face of consequences. To bolster this argument, Leanne and her lawyers allege that there was an unusually permissive attitude towards drugs in Donnie's family. Shortly after Laura's death, Leanne discovers a surprising piece of supporting evidence. Well, Laura saved everything, and I found in her things a letter written by Rebecca to the kids saying, Dear kids, I'm Beth's secret Santa this year, and what better gift than that bong? I know she really liked the bong you gave Sarah last Christmas. So what can be had in the $20 range? And the envelope was addressed LSD Van Nights. LSD. And she said in court, Laura, Sam, and Donald. But really, who does that? And then the letter is all about her buying a bong for her sister. And you should have seen their lawyer. Their lawyer just visibly sagged when that letter came out. The second prong of Leanne's argument in court is that Donnie had been violent with Laura. And, Leanne alleges, there is a risk he will be violent with Samson. Some of the evidence for this comes from Donnie himself, from his own admissions that arguments with Laura sometimes became physical. But other evidence comes in the form of sworn affidavits submitted to the court by Leanne from people relating what Laura had told them. There's the midwife who delivered Samson, who writes under oath that Laura had told her that Donnie had physically abused her, that Laura was afraid of Donnie, and that he would abuse Samson. There's also a friend of Laura's from her childbirth class, who writes under oath that Laura had described specific incidents when Donnie was violent with her. The wheels of justice turn slowly, and it would be years before the court would make a final determination about Donnie's fitness to raise Samson. So in December, the court holds a hearing to determine who should care for Samson in the meantime. At that hearing, the judge recognizes that Donnie has been caring exclusively for Samson for the past two months. And he acknowledges that Donnie has made admirable strides towards responsibility in that time. 
But the judge also decides he cannot overlook Donnie's past, and he rules that until a trial can be held to determine Samson's permanent fate, Leanne will be Samson's temporary guardian. Leanne will take care of Samson during the week, and Donnie, as his father, will have custody on weekends. King Solomon would have been proud, I think. By splitting the baby, the court defines the rhythm of Leanne, Samson, and Donnie's life for the next two years. Every Friday, Donnie drives to Iowa City to pick up Samson. And every Sunday, Leanne drives to Bonaparte to fetch him back. The whole time, their lawyers are fighting in court, running up legal bills. The transfers in Bonaparte are often tense affairs. Leanne takes to bringing someone with her because she's fearful about being in Bonaparte, alone with the knights. Ev, her former sister-in-law, often comes along. So I would just drive over there to Iowa City, pick her up, and I'd have the armor of the Lord on before I headed for Bonaparte. And I never had any fear of those people. I just drove up there and walked up to them, and they were trying to intimidate me, and I would not let them because God was right there. I could sense him right next to me. What they would do is if Leanne and someone else would come, they would come out and intimidate her. And it would take quite a long time before they'd, they'd hand over Samson. At one point, the knights start videotaping the handoffs. Leanne believes that Donnie is getting Samson riled up before she arrives, telling him that Leanne will be mean to him so that it'll appear on tape that Samson does not want to go with her. As the split between Leanne and Donnie widens, these fractures are felt throughout the community. Rumors circulate about Laura's death, about who is a suspect, about what the police are doing. People tell one another that the crime scene investigation had been botched, that the trucking company had paid Leanne a huge settlement. Neither of these things are true, as best as I've been able to determine, but the rumors persist to this day. Even at Laura's funeral, tensions are evident. I think I remember the funeral more than anything. That's Corinna Bailey, one of Laura's friends. I remember it was awkward that the Knights were on one side and, you know, the Yonkers and the Van Wyes were on the other. There was definitely contention between the two families about what, you know, like mainly I just remember there being a scene about who could hold, you know, Sam. The big issue was who got to you know, raise Sam, even though we were all at Laura's funeral, you know. I didn't understand that. Nobody at the funeral says anything outright about the emerging division between the families. But Laura's father, Bill, reminds everyone of the shadow looming over them. Laura was one of the most beautiful people ever put on this earth. She had every right to live a long, full life. Someone took that right from her, and I demand justice. The custody battle only sharpens the lines of the conflict. Leanne's investigator begins asking questions. Donnie is recruiting people to testify on his behalf. There are court hearings, and it's a small town. People talk. Laura's friend Jake, who was close with Annie and Sarah as well, remembers it as a difficult time. There was sort of a, a, a grief sharing that was going on, like in December or January, you know, of December 96, January 97 that really evaporated over the course of the next couple months. You know, once the custody stuff started, I think there was a sense that Laura's family was 
saying a lot of things about other people and about aspects of their lives that was stressful. It was damaging. I guess the way I would put it is, you know, there were certainly were people who stopped feeling comfortable talking to people that they knew were talking to Leanne. You know, it was sort of unavoidable and really unfortunate that people sort of felt like in the middle of all of this that they kind of needed to take sides. There were divisions between Donnie and his family and his close friends and Sarah and Leanne and their close friends and Laura's close friends. There were divisions in Iowa City. You know, I think people took sides emotionally, if not sort of on facts, right? It's a custody dispute, but one taking place in the shadow of an unsolved death, a possible murder. The next two years are filled with legal squabbles. Donnie and Leanne bicker about traveling out of state with Samson to visit family. Donnie seeks access to Laura's medical records, looking for evidence that Leanne had been an abusive or bad mother. But really, most of this is a sideshow. That's how litigation goes. Hours and hours burned on stuff ancillary to what really decides the case. The real heart of the issue is contained in the judge's temporary custody ruling, where he includes a very specific instruction to Donnie. During these visitations, Donald Knight shall not consume any alcoholic beverages for a period of 12 hours prior to the commencement of each visitation or any alcoholic beverages during the visitation period. In addition, Donald S. Knight shall not use any marijuana or other illegal drugs. To my eye, when the judge grants Donnie weekend custody of Sam, it isn't so much a compromise as it is a test, just like Solomon's proposal to literally split a baby was really a test. Donnie is Samson's father, and the law makes him the default parent. Donnie's past is troubling, but taking a child away from a parent is a very serious thing. It's among the heaviest and most consequential rulings a judge can be called upon to make. So this judge gives Donnie every chance to hold on to Samson. To pass the test, Donnie has to do two things. He has to give up drugs and alcohol, and he has to take good care of Samson for two days each week. And that's where Leanne's investigators come in. Because on at least three occasions, they observe Donnie picking up Samson in Iowa City, and then immediately afterwards, going to purchase alcohol, twice a bottle of vodka, and once a six-pack of beer. On its own, buying a bottle of vodka is hardly grounds for losing custody of a child. But it sure looks as if Donnie is flouting the judge's order, which I don't think you need a lawyer to tell you is something judges really dislike. As part of his own case, Donnie hires expert witnesses, an addiction counselor and a custody evaluator, who interview him and his family and review his medical history. He admits to the addiction counselor that he's still using marijuana occasionally and drinking, although he denies drinking when he has Sam with him. The addiction counselor concludes in the report, It is quite apparent that even with the risk of losing his son, he is unable to quit using alcohol and other drugs on his own. The report recommends that Donnie enter an inpatient treatment facility. The custody evaluator he hires concludes that Donnie is a fit parent, but caveats the finding. It is essential for the child's well-being that Mr. Knight avoid alcohol use and that he take action to prevent chemical abuse from happening again. Despite these recommendations, Donnie does not go to rehab during this period. In early 1997, he makes an appointment with an addiction counselor, but he doesn't show up. 
not going to treatment, that's a strike against him for sure. But he says something in his deposition which deserves consideration. Leanne's lawyer asks him why he didn't go to the facility that his own consultants recommended. Just because I didn't feel that I was going to be able to get the help there that I needed. Why not? I had just signed a release to release all my therapy to you guys. And I didn't feel that I could feel comfortable discussing anything with this lady. I felt it was basically sitting down and talking to you and Leanne about my emotional state. Donnie's track record with rehab is reason to be skeptical about his answer here. But he has a point. Litigation is intended to resolve differences, but because it's an adversarial process, it tends to heighten them and put litigants in difficult situations. While the case over Samson is pending, Leanne raises the stakes. She'd remarried several years earlier, and her husband had found a good job in Southern California. She tells Donnie and the court she wants to move there and take Samson with her. For his part, Donnie also pursues the case with vigor. He hires a well-regarded law firm that specializes in family law, and they pursue the mirror image strategy as Leanne. They try to depict Leanne as an unfit parent herself. They obtain the records of her three days in psychiatric hospitalization back in 1980. They obtain admissions that Leanne had struck Laura once when Laura was 13, slapping her with an open palm. They obtain records of counseling sessions in which Laura and Sarah complained that they could not trust their mother. In late 1998, after nearly two years of shared custody, Leanne asks the court to rescind Donnie's weekend visitation on the grounds that Donnie has continued to drink and smoke marijuana, that he has failed the judge's test. When Leanne introduces her evidence, it appears Donnie's lawyers advise him that he is unlikely to prevail. So Donnie signs a settlement agreement with Leanne, giving her permanent custody of Samson, but providing for his ongoing weekend visitation. Then something strange happens. Donnie's lawyers withdraw from the case. In his first court appearance as his own lawyer, Donnie tells the court he doesn't agree with the terms of the settlement he just signed, and he wants to go to trial and argue for full custody of Samson. Why does he keep the case going? Parties in litigation often harden into their positions. They develop greater enmity towards one another. It's a consequence of the adversarial system. And there was plenty of animosity between Leanne and Donnie, even before they became opponents in litigation. By revoking the agreement he'd signed and going to trial, Donnie forces Leanne to spend many thousands of dollars more in legal fees and endure months more uncertainty. Perhaps Donnie's real goal is simply punishing Leanne, punishing her for taking Samson away, punishing her for being his boss, punishing her for being strict with Laura, for never approving of him. The trial takes place over three days in May, 1999, and the court rules in July, nearly three years after Laura died. I was driving. I had Sam in the car. I stopped to take the call. It was after hours, like, you know, six o'clock at night or something like that. And I was just, I'll never forget that feeling. I was so elated. That's the happiest that I had probably been in years and years and years. If Donnie's objective was to remain a significant figure in his son's life, 
Taking the case to trial was a disaster. In the settlement Donnie's lawyers negotiated the year before, Leanne had agreed that Samson would spend every other weekend with Donnie, and if she moved to California, like she planned, that Samson would spend every other winter break, every spring break, and 30 days every summer with Donnie. After trial, the court's final ruling gave Donnie no scheduled custody. He is only allowed to visit Samson upon 10 days' notice to Leanne with supervision. And the court orders him to pay $100 a month in child support. Leanne shuts down her catering business and takes Sam with her to California. By the time they leave, Leanne's fear of Donnie's family has grown so great, she won't even tell her daughter Sarah where she and Samson have gone. The only way I could reach her was P.O. box and a phone, you know, cell phone. And that even I was not allowed to know her whereabouts. She didn't want them to be able to find out in any way where she lived. But I can understand why she left. I mean, she needed to start over. We both did. Leanne believes that she had to rescue Samson from the man who'd murdered her daughter. Donnie would not see his son again for 15 years. Many people who knew Donnie then and now simply don't believe he had anything to do with Laura's death. They say, and they are correct, that no evidence links Donnie to Laura's death, and the only bases for suspicion are circumstantial. He's an ex-boyfriend, and he had been violent with Laura when they were together. He invited her to a party the night she was killed and was one of the last people to see her alive. These facts might make Donnie a person of interest for law enforcement, but they're hardly strong evidence of guilt. And no law enforcement officer I've spoken with has named Donnie or anyone else as a suspect in Laura's death. Indeed, one of the aspects of this case that makes it so compelling is that the circumstances, they overwhelmingly suggest foul play. What Laura was wearing and carrying, the absence of blood at the scene, how she is found. Yet those same circumstances do so little to tell us what actually happened. All we have are circumstances. The phrase circumstantial evidence is often used disparagingly, like it doesn't mean anything. But circumstantial evidence is admissible in court. Juries can and do convict people entirely on circumstantial evidence. When evidence is circumstantial, it means that the fact finder has to make an inference to tie it to the crime. Fingerprints are circumstantial evidence. They might connect the suspect to a weapon or to a stolen item, but they don't tell you directly that the suspect committed a crime. A suspect's behavior after the crime, that can also be circumstantial evidence. When I interviewed Sarah, one of the first things she said to me was that she didn't believe Donnie was involved in her sister's death. She knew him, she said. And besides, he told her that he'd passed a lie detector test. He was staying with us after Laura died. I talked to him a lot, and he was very shaken by her death. He was just as upset, I'd say, as me and my mother. And for a time, that was a bonding experience between the three of us until um, it became more that he was in a position of being thought to be a potential, um, you know, suspect. So he, I remember the day he went to get a lie detector test to talk to him. I have a very 
intense one-on-one -on -one conversation with him and he cried and he was like I did not do this you know and I honestly believe him I do I mean uh, nobody else <laughs> nobody else believes me but um, I said well you'll be fine go to the lie detector test if you didn't do it you'll be okay you know and he did and he passed that's powerful testimony Laura's own sister says she believes Donnie wasn't involved and she tells me Donnie passed a lie detector test. Isn't that enough? Only, here's the thing. Donnie never took a lie detector test. Lying doesn't make you guilty, and, and being defensive doesn't make you guilty, and all that depends on the circumstances. That's Jim Trainum. He's a retired Washington, D.C. homicide detective who consults on cold cases. I've asked him to help us make sense of the conflicting and confusing evidence in this case. And he's right, of course. Lying about a lie detector test, that's hardly conclusive. Neither, I should add, is refusing to take one in the first place. They aren't always accurate, and they sometimes give false positives. They say you're lying when you aren't. So it's a gamble, and one lawyers typically advise clients is not worth taking. But Donnie's lying about it that makes us wonder about Sarah's opinion and the other people who've told me they don't consider Donnie a suspect. How well did they really know him? You can drive yourself crazy on this case, speculating about the what-ifs and maybes. That's part of why we asked Jim to come on board, to help us think about the case in a systematic fashion. One of the things that we're going to do in this case is we're going to think about the evidence and think about the, th the different theories that might fit that evidence. Uh, we might not come up with a perfect scenario and all that, but at least we'll start kind of narrowing it down as to what we really know happened. That's next time on Bonaparte. Bonaparte is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is written and hosted by me, Jason Stavers. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producers are Jason Hoke and Andrew Richards. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin, with story guidance from Matt Willis and Pete Sale. The series producer is Thomas Curry. The executive producer is Emma Weatherill. Voice acting by Matt Addis and Stefan Manal. Original music by Thomas Ross Fitzsimmons. Audio mix and sound design by Peregrine Andrews at Moving Air. Visit the Champion for Laura Van Wy Facebook page or championforlaura.com for more information about how you can help. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.